what's going on, Champagne Sharks? This is T. You could find the show through Twitter at Champagne Sharks. Just one word. That's the screen name on Twitter. You can email the show at champagnesharks at gmail.com. And also, most importantly, go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And for $5 a month, you get double the episodes. And you also get access to a Discord server, voice and chat server, where you can talk to each other, you know, other patrons of the show. Uh, you can talk to us. We're in there a lot. And also, we give you previews of guests who are coming up and allow you to ask them questions about anything you um, might want to know about. So it's a pretty good deal. And we have with us as co-host today, Ken. What up, guys? Uh, this is Kenny. Can't find me anywhere because I'm not on social media anymore. Yeah, yeah, he quit. He quit. I tapped out. Yeah, I'm planning to. That's why I didn't bother giving out my personal Twitter today because I'm I'm getting ready to shut it down. Well, hold on. Before we, but, you know, but let's, I'm just say this now. You'll be able to find me on YouTube because I'm going to be uploading the 503-305 podcast on the YouTube and then the Champagne Sharks. We're going to be on YouTube soon. So you probably won't be able to find any of us on Twitter anymore after a little while. Yeah, because I was saying, and um, I'm just going to say this real quick before I introduce our guests. I'm really starting to, I don't know when it happened, but I swear t- Twitter has become more toxic than even YouTube comments. Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I would actually rather, I don't know when it happened, but I would actually rather be, be on YouTube than on than And this isn't Twitter. like some like New Year's, New Year's resolution type. I've been thinking about getting rid of Twitter for a while, so I just got burnt out. Yeah, but without further ado, uh, we have our guest P.E. Moskowitz. Please uh, introduce yourself, let people know where to find you and uh, what you're about. Hey, I'm P.E. I'm a writer, journalist, author, general leftist type person. (laughs) And uh, you can find me, unfortunately, I'm still on Twitter, though I should probably get the fuck off soon I, I mean maybe maybe it isn't the same for you because i don't because lately for me it's just been unbearable but it might it might just be my experience i don't know i think it's always unbearable but like with any addiction it's like you keep doing it no matter how bad it is for you so yeah, yeah if you want to find me there at least for now it's underscore p-e-m underscore p-e-m i think what's made it like extra bad lately is i just feel like i don't know when it's happened but so many of the accounts are just these nameless faceless accounts with some weird ironic picture and some name like the noun haver or long lowercase sentence that makes no sense and before when it was just people's faces and names there's a little bit of accountability but now there's just the most trolliest irony poison people who just want attention score points yeah or attention like all day long like yeah my my yeah. theory is that it's bec- what, like since Tumblr has gone downhill, a lot of the like annoying Tumblr people have migrated to Twitter and have made it more annoying. That's my theory. yeah yeah. My theory is like yours even broader. I just think everyone from all different corners, like Tumblr, Redditors, all these different people, have just all come to one place so they control each other. And you know, it's the Trump, it's the Tumblr people, but also like. Everything except for those people at Gab, those like hard alt writers, I think they've pretty much given up on Twitter. But everyone else is just uh, sniping at each other all day. But you know, it is it is what it is. Uh, we had you on here today to talk about two books. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your other book about a year ago, but then when you told me about and sent me uh, your newest book, I figured. Let me just wait and talk about both of them at once. So I did read them um, back to back. It took me longer than I wanted, but I'm going to be honest with you. I was more excited about your book on gentrification 
the free speech one, the title of it, I was like, I don't really know what this is going to be about. I'm not really too much into free speech. And I have to say, it was fascinating. It actually changed how I thought about that topic, not only significantly, but it was a kind of a paradigm shifting uh, book for me. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was funny was as I was reading it, right, it was the exact same time that I think I was helped by the fact that there was an actual real life illustration going on, but there was that Shane Gillis Saturday Night Live case happening with him using those uh, Asian slurs. We're at this weird moment in time where we're, the alt-right is technically gone, but there's these class reductionists uh, left this online that I, I like to talk about the show with as little inside baseball as possible. So sometimes I ex- over-explain things that to the guests might be old hat, but you know, yeah. Um, there are these class reductionists that have kind of become like ascendant on Twitter uh, and they've come from this Reddit called Stupid Paul and it's just, they're obsessed with... Um, this idea of identity politics being the reason why socialism can't take form and they can't get Medicare for all. But it's this kind of ridiculous type of lifestyle identity politics that, you know, a few people uh, practice on Tumblr and Twitter, but is not really a major force in real politics. Like if anything's stopping Medicare for all, it's like major corporations, lobbies, like real major forces that I, in my opinion, I think it's forces that kind of scare them because they have no way stop fighting them. these you things. Stop them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they kind of like punch down on these, like, uh, people who are admittedly like annoying and weird, you know, and l- like, I'm not denying that these people are annoying, but the way you've made them into your obstacle about what's stopping everything you want. And I don't want to say it's even stopping socialism because I don't think they really care about socialism as a real theory and construct and way of helping humanity. They just want one or two things that they think socialism will get them. Right. And exactly. that's, and that, and that's that. So these people were kind of defending uh, Shane Gillis. Right. And their big thing they kept saying was uh, free speech, free speech, comedy is sacred, free speech, comedy is sacred, and cancel culture. Everyone kept saying cancel culture. And I was reading your book at the same time this debate was going on. And I think it was very fortuitous because, Ken, the premise of his book is that like free speech is like a meaningless term. It doesn't really mean anything. And by that, it's like, it's not, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong. Uh, it's not consistently applied in any particular way. It's just a matter of, it basically comes down to things that I like, I want you to be able to say. Things that I don't like, I'm going to have a problem with it. And I'm only going to use free speech when something that I like is being stopped from oh, being expressed. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot yeah, of times, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. And basically just the, the thesis of the book is that, we like no matter what society we live in, um, but, you know, including every past society and our current society, there are always severe restrictions on, on speech. We just never name them, um, you know, like even obviously someone even being hired by SNL. You know, I wasn't hired by SNL. That's not a, a violation of my free speech right? Thousands. Yeah, of exactly. Comedians, exactly. Th- thousands of comedians audition and are never hired for things. That's not a violation of speech. We only get mad about free speech during these very particular uh, instances. And, and I, in the book, I kind of trace how that has a lot to do with um, the success of, of the far right redefining these supposedly universal terms, not only free speech, but like the concept of, of freedom itself and, uh, you know, and a couple of other terms that, that we think we all know the meaning of, but really are kind of just right wing propaganda. Yeah. And, and there was um, one of those people, right? It's like one of these trolls that we were talking about was always talking about free speech. He's like one of those uh, 
uh, class reduction uh, so, uh, socialists or whatever, and they don't like they don't like the AD, the was it the JDL? What's the what's the group that PewDiePie got in trouble for? Um, there's a Jewish oh, the anti ADL, yeah. yeah, yeah, the ADL. So because they don't like the the, the ADL, right? Um, PewDiePie canceled his forty thousand the forty thousand pound donation to the ADL after backlash from, you know, fans because they don't like the ADL, uh, a lot of these people, but for different reasons. They don't like it. PewDiePie's fans don't like it because they're anti-Semitic. I think I think these people didn't like it because of some anti-Israel stance they have, uh, pro-Palestinian, yeah. whatever. But these are the same people who were like, complaining about Shane Gillis like crazy in cancel culture. So then when the Shane Gillis thing was going on, they kept saying free speech. Uh, Shane Gillis should get that job. You know, he should be able to say slurs. I kept saying to all that, I kept using that example because I knew that they supported uh, this action. I was like, why is PewDiePie's fans um, stopping him from doing the donation. Why is that not cancel culture? Right, and they exactly. kept saying, and this kept saying, oh well, Israel sucks. This that. I'm like, but that's not the point. Like, it doesn't matter what the merit of the case is. We're talking like, so about sudden, we're talking about people that want to have the right to be a dickhead to everybody. This is mm -hmm. typical white supremacist thought. Yeah. Like, this is old. This is old typical white supremacist thought. I want to be able to be a dickhead to you because you're different than me. And anytime you're a dickhead to me, I'm going to call it reverse racism or I'm going to call it some type of way that I'm being treated like a, I'm a victim now. Yeah. 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 And I, I have an excuse for everything. Yes. Yeah. And I think the reason we're seeing the, the excuse of free speech come up so much is because for the first time in U.S. history, like this group of people is being challenged and being called on their bullshit, you know, being, you know, people are saying like, we don't want to listen to your transphobic bullshit or your racist bullshit or whatever. And all of a sudden they have, they know they can't just like keep doing it without any consequence. And I think, you know, no one, no one has proposed a loss. You can't be, uh, you can't say, uh, you know, dumb shit on Twitter. No one is saying that, but what they would really want is a world without consequence, you know, like, sure, you can be as, as, for as, them at least. For as them at least. you can be as racist or as transphobic or as whatever as you as you want but that doesn't mean people aren't going to be angry at you or or disinvite you from things or you know fire you or whatever because that's that's how consequences work and if you do shitty things then you have to deal with the consequences but thing with them is they don't even want a world free of consequences because like with the pewdiepie thing they wanted him to feel that pressure from his fans and do not do the donation to adl so that's what makes it even more hip hypocritical if they were at least acting that way but were really across the board for nobody having consequences I still wouldn't agree with it, but I can at least say, okay, you guys have a principle that you're following, but they don't even really believe that. Same with the um, same with the right wing people, the right wing people who kind of say, oh, free speech, you know, when it comes to X, Y, and Z. But the minute Kaepernick bends his knees, they're like, you know, fire that asshole, like you know, it's and they don't see a hint of irony in it, you know. That's, yeah, because that's what we, the part I mean, that really this is me. the typical. I mean, this is you know, I'm even gonna call it a broken record, but it's just typical privilege. You know what I'm saying? Like you want to be able to harm people and not face the consequences for it. So like comedy, you know, um, today there's more comedians than any time ever in history. So. You know, you go back into the 90s, you didn't even have Eddie Murphy because he wasn't doing stand up anymore. But you had Andrew Dice Clay who will say fucked up shit. But Andrew Dice Clay had his audience and they didn't try to shove that. They didn't try to shove Andrew Dice Clay in your face. 
You know what I'm saying? If you were a fan of Andrew Dice Clay, then you watched it. If you weren't, or if you were a fan of Sam Kinison or whatever, that's what you watch. To whereas now, they want to be a dickhead and make you like it. You know what I'm saying? Now they want, if you don't like it, there's something wrong with you. You know what I'm saying? That's where these people are at. Like, they're, they're kind of sociopathic. Yeah, and, and I think I think it under-discussed uh, part of, of this whole thing, uh, you know, of this free speech debate and also like, quote unquote, cancel culture and all that is how it's actually a product, the monopolization of culture. Because, you know, as you said, yeah, in the 90s, you could be a fan of someone like Andrew Dice Clay, but like you didn't you didn't have to be. But now we're all on Twitter. We're all on Facebook. We're all on YouTube. Right. There's only like three forums in the world where culture is being discussed or where we can congregate and uh, talk about shit. And it's the same, you know, like Nazis existed in the 90s too. Obviously they existed, uh, you know, throughout American history, but I didn't have to be in a room with them, you know, debating whether or not they were good. Um, Whereas now, even though obviously I don't follow any Nazis on Twitter, every day I'm finding myself having to say, this is bad and interact with these things that I should, that in the past I would have never had to interact with. And and these are the things that me, T and Mario have talked about. You know, um, I don't know if you pay attention to the show a lot, but I blame everything on the internet. So everything is the internet's fault and it's true. So with, with social media, you're being forced and this is what I don't like about Twitter, and that's why I don't use it anymore. I don't want to be around these people anymore. You know, I mean, really, well, that's really well, what it boils down to. Well, one of the things that we talk about, like, there, were, there was all this promise and predictions that the internet had. But I think there was a subtle, like, seismic shift that a lot of us didn't really appreciate at the time. And I think it was basically the, the big four of, like, MySpace, then, which eventually became Facebook. Not officially, but it became supplanted by Facebook, Twitter, and um Instagram, but what I mean by that is like before those things came along, there was this kind of fear slash hope that everything was becoming niche and atomized. It was like, hey, there's 500,000 forums around and everyone has their favorite forum. I'm on the heavy metal forum. You're on the hip hop forum. You're on this forum. Everyone's watching music on their own devices or listening to their own things. And it was like, there was this kind of thing where there was no family time in front of the TV anymore or sitting by the radio. Everyone was doing their own thing. Some people worried about it, thought it was bad, but those were all curated spaces. It was like, hey, I got my favorite blog and the owner of the blog moderates the comments and it's a community or there's this um, forum on this forum. uh, We have community moderators, like users who are also moderators and an owner of the forum who himself is always posting on it. And as a community, we set our own standards for this. And that, that was cool. And I think for better or worse, that was one thing. But uh, the current model of social media, which is one giant free-for-all Wild West chat room, uh, there's three just big Wild West chat rooms that everybody's on and nobody chose to be on with these people. You're on with Nazis, you're on with Democrats, Republicans, socialists, uh, trolls, everybody. And we don't control it. There's a, there's a board of directors and an algorithm running the shit. You know what I'm saying? I think that's the reverse thing of what we're talking about that makes everything worse. We're all together. So now it's like in my small forum back in the day, I could have been talking about this new rap album that came out with my rap friends or whatever. And you could be talking about your thing. But now I I notice we all have to end up talking about the same thing by critical mass. Like right now, like last week, everyone was talking about Uncut Gems, the movie. And they were talking about it so much, I just broke down and watched it. Just because I'm like, I'm sick of not knowing what everyone's talking about. And Star Wars, for like a month, everyone's talking about Star Wars. And I think politically, we're in that same space now. Like, someone makes a panic about campus culture. 
And suddenly, like shit that I normally would not have cared about, suddenly I'm reading like a Jonathan Chait piece. Like, like, like the people have come on my radar that used to not be on my radar before Twitter. Why do I now know always what Jonathan Chait thinks about everything? Why am I always arguing about campus culture and Shane Gillis? And uh, you know, it's like for better or worse, this is where we are. Yeah, and I, I think um, again, that's just like you know, it's not only social media; it's just media in general has been so corporatized and monopolized that we don't even realize that we're kind of like the terms of our debate are so limited. You know, like we're we're discussing whether there's adequate representation in in Star Wars, and meanwhile, you know, Disney owns like eighty percent of the box office, and no other. Yep. Like the problem is not representation in Star Wars because Star Wars is if like who gives a fuck? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and like the problem is that there's one company making every movie in the world yeah but 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 that company probably owns like street companies that own all the prestige media sites right but then on top of that all the reporters now are on twitter and getting the news from twitter anyway it's all it's all eating its own tail and i i talk about that i think i yeah i wish i got to it more in the book but i do talk about like the internet in general at the end of um the free speech book just in terms of how we thought of it as some kind of like utopian project but really from its get-go it was like this project of of like corporate surveillance and um you know it was created to essentially spy on activists by uh by the u.s government it was created as a as a uh as a tool of war to you know to kind of track and kill people in in cambodia and vietnam and then um used against leftists in the united states and then it was privatized that technology was privatized and given over to very few companies you know the ones that we still you know that control the internet now you know the first research papers that started google were funded in part by the u.s government so it i think i think we've all been like fed this lie that the internet is some kind of like liberatory space where we can have you know like have conversations we were never able to have before when in reality it's just like another corporate controlled space that um you don't have as much freedom to, as you think you do when you're on it. Can I ask you, at any point, do you think it started becoming that? I mean, like, there's no way the powers that be would have let it remain that. But do you think at any point in time that utopia was bearing fruit? Or do you think it's always been an illusion of what the Internet could be? Um, I mean, I think a little bit of both. I think there was, you know, some kind of like golden age where, you know, there were all these separate uh, there there were all these separate communities where people could find each other and to a certain extent that still exists like you know with trans stuff i'm trans and like being able to go to a small facebook group or a reddit page or whatever figure out other people's surgeons and you know rate them and whatever and talk about complications and all that kind of stuff like that that didn't necessarily exist before the internet so in a way i think um it still does have that that promise of we can find our niche communities but i do think i do think it's just a problem of monopolization like if facebook and twitter and google own everything then that there's really no chance of creating uh, communities that can be helpful for you because the communities they want are communities that that help their bottom line, you know? Yeah, and I think something else that happens with those niche communities now is uh, the few of those communities that I'm in, a disproportionate of time, a disproportionate amount of time ends up being spent with people linking to terrible tweets yeah. that are burning up the Twitter sphere. So even even that niche community will just be people discussing or arguing about the new stupid dumb take or debate consuming Twitter or 
whatever. And, th- so and that's what ends up being is like you get, you know, for whatever, for every two good tweets of someone that's saying something that you might want to look into, there's 50,000 other other ones where they ain't talking about shit. And it's a whole lot of even even they'll even jump in with this person that's having an intellectual conversation. They'll even jump in there with their bullshit. You're like, wait a minute. Look, OK, this is there's too many people. You know, I always use this analogy, you know, back in the days, if you was from the hood, you know, what I'm saying there was certain kind of people that couldn't be out there because you're a fucking idiot. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're not allowed to be on the block. Get the fuck out of here. You know what I'm but, saying? But also, you're high. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be at the, on the block just saying whatever because somebody might punch them in the face. That's now my whole point. Just, yeah, yeah. People people just have no consequences to anything. There's no consequences funny. on the internet. But but it, go, it goes back... Yeah, sorry. It goes back to your book. It goes back to your book. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I kind of learned writing this book, too, is that, like, consequences are, are good. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the government in general. Like, I'm a anarcho-communist if I had to define my politics like that but um so when i say consequences i don't mean you should be jailed for saying something i don't mean the government should get involved and shut you down or whatever but social consequences between people have always existed and and are good and you know it's not only that they're good it's that society couldn't function without them carolyn rouse this this uh princeton professor had this really good talk a few years ago that obviously like the alt-right got a hold of and and totally mischaracterized but she but she just like laid out in really like just just kind of how obvious uh obviously terrible it would be if things didn't have consequences and that everything has context that we all kind of adapt to so yeah if you're in a classroom you can't just get up and start yelling about how much you hate grapefruits or something i don't know if you're in a doctor's office and your doctor you know won't give you medical advice but is only talking about star wars then that's not a good doctor (laughs) um there are all these ways that we limit ourselves and um you know we're trained to think that any limits to what we do are are bad but we're doing it all the time and it's really the only way you function in life is by limiting yourself based on the context so you know and i think that goes into like arguments over like whether it's okay to punch a nazi and things like that it's no one is saying that or very few people are saying we need to outlaw x y and z you know i think especially like leftists are very skeptical that the government would ever do a good job of outlying anything and not just making it like another racist program to jail more people but what they're saying is that things should still have consequences if you're an idiot if you're a nazi if you are spouting some hateful shit then like yeah you deserve to be punched in the face and there, there's nothing wrong with that that's not cancel culture that's human culture <laughs> that's a yeah, great that's a great culture, distinction i never even thought to make that distinction but i was just gonna ask like i oftentimes wonder i like the fact that the internet uh in a in a sense it's i don't even want to say self-regulating because i think that might be giving it a little too, giving people a little too much credit. But I often wonder, like when we talk about the consequences of what we, the type of things that we see happening now is, will we ever find equilibrium in that? And like, how much is too much? Like, like the doxing that happens with people and things like that. Now, granted, even myself, you know, I'm very weary of things like that, but I still, from time to time, when some asshole gets doxed, sometimes I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, it's satisfying to see, you know, someone, for example, who's, I'm just using this as an example, someone who's like a raging misogynist or something. And then he gets doxed and you find out, you know, he's like some fat dude living in his mother's basement or something like that. You know, there's always a, a justice to it, but I do, wonder um how far is too far 
you know. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Mario, by the way. I just kind of <laughs> bulldoze my way into the conversation. <laughs> I do that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I do that. I'm one of the co-hosts on the show, and I'm usually I'm running late when we hop in, and then I just get in and start talking, and people are like, what the hell's going on? So sorry about that. My name is Mario, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question that, I, you know, I don't necessarily have the the answer to I mean I think I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is like power dynamics and like how how are the kind of playing field has been warped um, in terms of like who gets speech who gets a voice who gets a platform um, it's been warped so much already so so when you're talking about doxing someone yeah I have, I have conflicting feelings like if they're like a random person who said something shitty and they live in their mom's basement like do they deserve to have their entire lives ruined for that like probably not but if it's someone with power if it's someone who who can't be held to account or can't you can't bring consequences upon that person in any other way then I think that you know that 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 can be an effective method of of doing that um yeah so i think i think i mean to me it's like a case-by-case basis thing but when you you know when it comes to things that are actually like dangerous like allowing nazism to grow on the streets of the u.s or whatever i think it's kind of a you know there's what what what's your other option to to ask politely or um it there there's no other way to challenge that power except to use you know all means necessary so i wanted to go into a summary of the book itself because this is all like fascinating stuff but i I want to keep taking it back to the actual uh book and one of the things that your book starts off with is the statement that there is no such a thing as free speech that is meaningless and then you give a reason as to why you think the book's important, because you raised a good question after that, which is, if I think this is meaningless, why am I writing this book? And I think that's a good jumping on point for people to get an idea of what the book's about, because I really want people to walk away knowing what this book is about. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's about challenging kind of like all our preconceived notions of of um, like what we've been taught is is true about the U.S. uh, in terms of not only freedom of speech, but the idea of democracy and freedom. Um, You know, we there are all these kind of things that we take as a given, like the idea that we live in a democracy, the idea that we have freedom of speech. And it there once you just start poking holes in them a little bit, you realize that they're they're just not true. And I think, you know, in one sense, the book is just about that. It's about saying, wait, all these all these um universal terms that we use do they actually mean anything and um you know so i think that that's part of the reason i want to write the book but then the second thing is once you start poking holes in them you realize what those kind of universal truths are 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 covering up you know so if you start poking holes in that in the concept of free speech you realize that usually when people are talking about free speech what they're actually talking about is is race and class and everything else um and that basically we've come up with all these universal terms to kind of excuse ourselves from having these much more contentious conversations um and you know i think yeah there being nazis on the street 
is a good example of that is like we debate endlessly should nazis have a right to speak on american streets and by debating that constantly we don't ask the question why the hell are there nazis on the streets <laughs> where why are they there who allowed them to be there what ideology in america uh you know promotes uh nazism and white nationalism um all those other questions are much more important than should nazis be able to speak but because we get stuck on this question of who gets quote-unquote freedom who gets freedom of speech we never actually answer those more important questions yeah yeah and the, and the big takeaway i took from that uh after reading your book is like what really happens most of the time because you said something that was very great in the opening chapter of the book you say free speech has never really existed because freedom and liberty have never really existed for the vast majority of Americans. And, you know, it's kind of true because free speech often clamps down harder on people of color than it does on white men historically. You know what I mean? You know, like the line that you can cross is a lot more stringent for some people than others. And it kind of comes down to the only consistency in how the argument for free speech is applied is free speech for me, but not for thee, basically, is the the rule of thumb and once you kind of get to the point where you realize that free speech is kind of a bullshit um argument that people just kind of use it as a way to shut you down without actually arguing the merits of what you're talking about and that they only apply it to things they don't like or or you know do like in terms of defending it it becomes a better question to ask is this speech constructive or destructive rather than just pretending that there's such a thing as free speech that exists because like you point out in the book because your book is good because it has a big history of how it's applied from the old days to now and the only real consistent way it's applied is i don't like it it's not protected by free speech and i happen to be the one in power right now so i get the one to decide what i like and don't like right and yeah i think that the i is very important in that because the i has historically been like the u.s government and and corporations essentially um you know if I don't like, I mean, I as a author have more free speech than your average American, but if I don't like something you say, I can't arrest you for it or whatever, you know, but the government does have that power. And I think the more the more I research free speech and its history, the more I just kind of roll my eyes at the entire discourse surrounding it because, you know, it's so obvious, but I think it, it's not stated enough, like the value of free speech, which we all supposedly hold so dear, was created by slave owners, <laughs> was created by people who um, thought that voting, which, you know, if you think voting is an important uh, method of expressing your free speech, they believe that voting should only be for white land owning men. Um, you know, it was created by people who were supportive of Native American genocide. So it's like just the idea that we would be debating, oh, are we honoring our founding values of free speech? It's like that never existed in the first place. And why are we arguing about this thing that never existed? Just going back to that time period, I mean, literally as soon as the amendments were passed, the same people who wrote the amendments were jailing people for, for saying things that they didn't like. You know, and in a large part, like 
the history of the United States social struggle is about the government trying to suppress people's free speech while at the same time saying we value free speech. So um, if you go to, uh, you know, if you go to right after the amendments were passed, people were being jailed under the Alien and Sedition Act for um, saying things that politicians didn't like. If you go to uh, the 1920s when companies were murdering uh, union members for for protesting and the government was a-okay with that if you go to the 40s and 50s under the mccarthy era where the government was saying you know freedom of speech is great unless you're a communist then you deserve to be in jail if you go to the 60s when cointel pro was a thing and um you know from one side of their mouth people were saying you know freedom of speech america democracy blah 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 and on the other side you know killing and framing and jailing and doing other terrible things to the Black Panthers and to other social movements, you know, all the way up until today when the same people complaining about free speech on the right are the same people keeping Chelsea Manning in prison or the same people that um, are, you know, that are arresting protesters at the Dakota Access Pipeline and at the anti-Trump protests and all of that. So it's never it's never been a thing. And people can say, oh, well, it's an ideal ideal that we can look up to. And and it's something that we, you know, can um, can try to uphold. And that's what's important about it. But if you believe that, then you have to believe that for all of American history, we have deeply, 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 deeply failed at even attempting to uphold that ideal. And and I think a big thing that needs to be faced is not only has it never been a thing as in past tense, it's not a thing now, but nobody actually really wants it. Everyone who used to claim that they want free speech when push comes, and by free speech, like totally unrestricted, free from consequences speech, all of them at some point have a line where they say, oh, wait a minute, that's too far. This person needs to pay. There's got to be consequences, you know? So if we can just give up this pretense of even pretending that any of us want this, that opens the door. And I think that's what you say in this book to just having real conversations about, okay, look, all of us believe some speech should be expressed and some speech shouldn't. So instead of creating this fake universal good that must be religiously consistently applied, you know, let's admit that it never is, that none of us really believe in this. And let's start having hard conversations, like difficult conversations about what counts as constructive, useful speech and what counts as detrimental speech that we as a country can agree on. And I just think there's something that really scares people about that hard work. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, And I think it's also really important to point out that like the way we think of free speech now is completely influenced by this like very specific history of of conservative propaganda. Like in the 1970s, the Koch brothers and, you know, your regular usual suspects of evil right wing billionaires got together and came up with this program. Uh, You know, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's like all written down on paper. You can read about it in my book or elsewhere. Oh, uh, would you mind giving a quick summary of that? Uh, first, I want to ask you guys, um, Ken, Mario, do you understand the Koch brothers? I know I always knew that they were bad guys, but I never really understood it. Actually, what was so bad about them until your book? Uh, f- for people who haven't read the book, one thing that's good about this book is that you don't just delve into this uh, free speech theory. You take the first part of the book to actually go through a whole history from like colonial times to now about what it means and what and how it's evolved. And then you get to this point with the uh, 
Koch brothers. And I was so grateful because I'm like, I finally understand how all this shit fits together. Like stuff that I knew separately, like Alan Bloom, Dinesh D'Souza, the PC, the bass, the Koch brothers. Your book is the first book I read that actually put it all together. So would you mind just giving like a quick uh, overview of what and who the Koch brothers, what the Koch brothers do and who they are and what their agenda is? So the Koch brothers are billionaires who own a variety of companies from like oil companies and coal companies to toilet paper manufacturing and a bunch of other random shit. Um, And, you know, they're not they're not singular like they lots of other conservative billionaires have have influenced U.S. politics, too. But I think the Koch brothers are unfortunately kind of brilliant in their in their strategy of how they've managed to change American politics and American culture. Um, and yeah, as I write about in the book, I think I think what they were so smart at is understanding that essentially having a super right wing conservative revolution in the United States was not just like a five year thing or a two year thing. It was like a multi decade thing. So They've been working for decades upon decades to essentially influence how we think about everything from democracy to freedom of speech to environmental regulation and uh, taxation and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, all, all our kind of all our um, current political right wing talking points, most of them you can trace back to the Koch brothers and um, and them uh, essentially uh creating these these philosophies. So when it comes to free speech, they in the 1970s um, came up with this plan. You know, they said no one is going to go. No one in America is going to go for lower taxation on wealthy people. No one is going to go for um, more prisons and and less environmental regulation and all that kind of stuff because no one you know those things are bad right and and at that point in american history they were unpopular so what they came up with was a strategy to reframe those issues as issues of freedom democracy democracy and free speech um and they they had their policy advisor write down a essentially a plan of how to convince everyone um, that these were uh, issues worth caring about. So they they thought of um, of right wing policy as a kind of product. And you have to in order to have in order to create a product, you need the intellectual raw materials, um, which they thought were books, uh, college professors, student groups, things like that, things that create the kind of intellectual environment in which we think about things. Um, and then once you have once you've captured that, then you can move on to the production of those raw materials uh, through things like think tanks and politicians. And finally, those raw materials become products like laws um, that lower taxes on the rich and, and things like that. So if you go back to this to the late 70s, 80s and early 90s, the Koch brothers were essentially buying colleges. Uh, you know, they were creating campus groups. Um, they were uh, funding hundreds and hundreds of books. They were funding um, professors' entire careers. And and these super influential things um, today, like um, Charles Murray's The Bell Curve, wouldn't have been possible without, um, without all of the strategy and all of the monetary support that these billionaires were giving to them. So, so what they did was essentially like, um, yeah, you mentioned Dinesh D'Souza and Alan Bloom, like these people were funded directly by, by these billionaires who wanted to create this idea that conservatism 
was being suppressed in the United States and we needed to fight it. We need to fight that suppression or else we were being anti-free speech. So that's how you get the PC crisis in the early 1990s when all of a sudden the entire media is freaking out about whether or not we're too PC. And it's still the same today where, you know, all these people at Milo Yiannopoulos and Coulter, all those people have this strategy of saying, if you disagree with what I say, you're suppressing my free speech. What was interesting about the Koch brothers to me is they are basically, when I was reading your book, everything that right-wingers have pummeled us into believing that George Soros is to the left. So I was like, wait, all this crazy conspiratorial shit that right-wingers blame on George Soros, this is actually the Koch brothers. Except it's all actually documented. Yeah, and it's all like documented. It's not speculation. It's not like the it's always sunny meme with the guys doing the conspiratorial thing where you know he's putting all the papers up. No, it's actually um documented stuff. And I was really impressed at not only how good they are at propaganda, but all this stuff I thought was independent grassroots right wing uh culture war stuff was really just top down. Uh, dictated stuff by them, including uh, what is the closing of the American mind? I had no idea that was by Alan Bloom. I had no idea that was uh, Koch Brothers. Yeah, and and that book, which came out, I forget the exact year, but something like 1990, sold over a million copies. The New York Times covered it a jillion times. Newsweek had like a cover story about it. It was really like the centerpiece of American conversation. And it basically was like, its basic thesis was that young Americans were too... You know, now we would use the term snowflake. I forget the term they used then, but that they were too sensitive to um, really grapple with with um, uh, important ideas. And it essentially created this entire culture war where, you know, anytime anyone brought up racism or transphobia or whatever, all of a sudden the response from the mainstream media and from college administrations and all the rest was, oh, well, you know, you've you've closed your mind. You're just too sensitive to to appreciate what we're trying to say to you. And yeah, and that was all funded by the Koch brothers and, you know, in all fairness, not only them, but some other right wing billionaires, too. Yeah, yeah, I know the Coors guys tried to do some stuff and there was all these different ones, but there were three books. That's if I remember the books, right? It's Closing the American Minds. There was Tenured Radicals. Was that was that the Dinesh D'Souza one? No, or? I forget who Tenured Radicals is by. Dinesh D'Souza wrote A Liberal Education. And those were like the big three. And I just thought those were three books that came out independently that had a big impact, like some kind of grassroots, uncoordinated thing in the air by the right. But I had no idea the Koch brothers had these three things. And that was a big part of pushing this campus wars, uh, campus as the front line for the suppression of free speech thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're seeing the same thing today. And that's why I get so frustrated with our free speech debates right now, especially on college campuses, because while we're arguing over whether student groups are being too you know, sensitive or silencing people or whatever, like the Koch brothers and other billionaires are literally just buying colleges and universities outright and dictating uh, entire curriculums and, and everything like that. So, And they haven't changed, not only have they not changed the playbook, but it keeps working. But not just that, the so-called liberal pundits or whatever are still letting them dictate the terms of the debate. Because like, why is, you would think once you found out all this stuff and the Koch brothers engineering it and stuff like that, the so-called liberals like Jonathan Chait would be like, I'm going to stop biting at debate. You know, the, the fact that the fact that the Koch brothers engineered this whole thing should be more important than, you know, engaging in the debate at face level. But people are kind of just addicted to, I think, the culture war shit that they can't even focus on a puppeteer for even a second. 
Yeah, and it's, I think it's just easy. I mean, I think one of the reasons that colleges get so much focus in, in the media is because it's just it's just fucking easy to pick on college students. <laughs> like, you can just say, oh, they're ungrateful. Oh, they don't know what they're talking about. They just, like, love arguing amongst themselves and yada, yada. And it's just so much easier than, you know, actually doing journalism <laughs> or, uh, or like, thinking. Or, 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 politi- or politics, even. I think uh, a lot of people, it's easier because... Freaking Barack Obama recently came, even came out and talked about uh, cancel culture getting out of control. And it's like, he's someone who, you know, I think he must be an influencer. He doesn't want to do the hard work of being an elder statesman. He doesn't want to do what Jimmy Jimmy Carter does, you know, or speak out about anything. He wants to make sure he can keep getting Netflix deals and doing whatever. So, you know, he comes out and it's time to talk about politics once a year. And what does he talk about? Cancel culture. He doesn't talk about anything else of importance in America. That's the most important thing that he can talk about as an ex-president. And and it's, yeah, again, it's like a don't look behind the the curtain kind of thing. I mean, if you're talking about cancel culture, if you're talking about how students are too sensitive and yada, yada, then you're not talking about what the students are actually talking about, you know? And it's so like, I I spend a lot of time in the book talking about Evergreen College, uh, where there was this day of presence, day of absence thing where um, students of color, you know, for for something like 20 years, they had left campus one day every year to discuss like issues of racism on campus. But a few years ago, they were like, well, why don't we make it the opposite where like white students leave if they want to. And it was always voluntary. Um, It wasn't like a forced exodus of white people from campus or anything. But the, you know, the actual issues they were talking about were, you know, why the hell is higher education so racist? Like, how do we make it less racist, et cetera, et cetera. And instead, it just got turned into a conversation of are we silencing white people? Are we are students too sensitive? And and by turning it into that conversation, you get to completely ignore what then what they were actually asking and talking about. One of the things about your book that I like is that the scope of it is has a lot of breadth and not just depth, but a lot of breadth. So you talk about the history of free speech in the Supreme Court, the ACLU history, Skokie, this protest that happened there and what changed, Carthyism, uh, how the free speech went from a left idea to a right idea, like, you know, how free speech was something that was more talked about by anti-McCarthyists and hippie protesters. Now it's purview of Milo and 4chan and these right these right wing guys. And then you talk about several schools, Middlebury incident, Evergreen incident, Charles Murray, J20, you know, the Alaska pipeline. I just want to give people a full range of what's covered in this book that all gets kind of put together into a cohesive narrative that supports the main point. Like this isn't just a wonky book that talks about a theory and gets bogged down in legal theory. You, It's very much a history book, as well as a political book, as well as a um, theory book. Being that we have about 10 minutes left, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to give the co-host chance to ask questions. And I also wanted to give you a chance to, out of everything we talked about, what you think would be the most important thing for you to, um, you know, go into in the final minutes of the show because based on everything I said this could be a three hour show you know to go through everything in the book you go through a lot of lot of things and um, in a very brisk but thorough way so so I'll give you time to think about what the most you know 
important thing you want to talk about the last few minutes of the show is. And in the meantime, go to the co-host and see what kind of questions you guys or t- or thoughts you guys might have. As far as the free speech in that, you know, I think we kind of touched on it. You know, for me, when it comes to these people, you know, it's very simple. And like we were talking about how the Internet has become crowded because of this. And you get these um you either you either have to be one way or you have to be the other way. You know what I mean? You can't be in the middle. You can't say, okay, yeah, some stuff is, you know, some stuff is good and then some stuff is just bad. Like, it's okay to say that you're a piece of shit person because you want to be a racist and you want everybody to listen to you. You know what I mean? It's, you know, back in the days, if you didn't want to listen to the Richard Pryor record, you didn't buy it. You Now, I didn't, not only do I not want to buy it, you broke into my house and put it on my record player and made me listen to it. You know what else is annoying about that to me? Me too, right? Uh, this is in line. This is in line, in line. What you're saying, people can't just say, "Hey, I like this." Just because I like it, or I, like I don't, it, right. or, or I don't like it, just because it gets on my nerves, or I don't like it. There had to be ten. There's a higher good, and it's free speech. So it's like if you don't let uh, Shane Gillis say uh, chinks, or let so and so say nigger, you know, you, the 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 free society is going to fall, you know, right, because right. Uh, free speech is being like, you know, just say I like slurs, you know, but no one wants to say that because <laughs> now they're gonna look like an asshole, you know, and, or, or or just say, hey, uh, you know, I like things that make me feel good about myself and this thing makes me feel good as a white man a black man a gay man a straight man and you know there's no higher good to it i just like it but no it's like no this has to exist because it's it's uh pushing free speech and it's uh challenging norms it's like just shut up you that's not why you like it it's not why you dislike it and i almost feel like um in this content in this in this environment like the battle lines are so tightly drawn that it's almost a, you almost can't even take the position of, well, I don't know enough about the subject. I'm I'm not going to comment because it feels like you're being forced to say something one way or another. You know what I mean? Like you have to choose the battle lines and you have to choose them immediately, you know, regardless of whether or not you're ignorant of what's even being discussed and debated. Like, Man, you're giving people too much credit. Yeah, you're giving people too much credit by even acting like they care about not knowing what they're talking about. No one even cares about <laughs> yeah. care. Yeah. Oh, you think yeah. people are just going to bullshit care. their way through? <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, I, I wish the people had a conscience like, that, that you had to force them to weigh in on stuff they don't know about. Okay, I well, maybe I should just speak for myself then. I know I'm one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like that. I know we, you're like that. We you're exist. Kind of person. We're here. Yeah, yeah. If you don't know what you're talking about, no, there was something on Twitter where everybody was talking about it, and I forgot what it was. It was one of those days where everyone's weighing in on something, and I started typing, and I remember I was like halfway through a tweet, and I'm like, you know what? I don't really have anything to say about this, and I don't know anything. Like, why am I typing it? But it was a reflex. I was just, I was just typing. I'm like, I have no qualifications to weigh in on. Like, no one's just sitting there saying, what happens if T doesn't tweet? Like, let me get T's hot take on this. Right. Right, right, right. I I can just shut the fuck up, like, you know, but a lot of people don't think that way. But this is what gets me on my nerves. They all think that they have to weigh in, but they're too lazy to actually do the work. So then they make up fake reasons so they can get into the argument. Free speech, I think, is one of them. But I think in general, people just look for reasons to get into the argument without having to actually do do the work. And I think the free speech uh, emblematic of that, you know? 
I, I think that's true. And I think, I mean, there, there are some like leftist theorists who have like talked about social media as like a form of like labor. And I think that, that that's kind of under discussed. Like it only works. It's only profitable because we talk on it, because we debate, because we're always coming up with these hot takes to get angry at each other over. And so I think we have to think about how we're kind of being goaded into these arguments all the time. You know, like if everyone isn't yelling about the new Star Wars or whether some movie is radical or not radical or whatever, then if no one is arguing about that, then Facebook and Twitter have nothing to sell ads against. So yep. so yep. I think I think it's really hard because this is where most conversations are happening. It's hard to just say, I don't want to do that anymore. But at the same time, it's not like you're choosing not to be a good citizen or something. You're choosing not to participate in like having your thoughts and discourse monetized for someone else's profit. That not, not only the, uh, do we create the content, but we even create the actual form and the structure and the product because Twitter, as invented by tech heads who came up with it, was the worst freaking idea ever. It was just a bunch of like tech bros saying, I ate a sandwich. It was just a live update of every piece of mundanity in your life. And then just regular users started using it to talk about thoughts. Then they created like the ongoing Twitter thread. And then uh, users created the retweet. They manually typed in the retweet. They would copy someone's tweet, the letters RT in front of it, and then type in it in front of that. Then basically every single feature, everything that makes Twitter the force it is today, all features are created by the users that the company said, oh, the users are using it like this. Let's make that a feature. So the actual creator of Twitter pretty much had no good ideas about the product. It was just users, all their um, immense cleverness came up with every single feature that that site has that makes it cool to use. You guys pay, none of them get paid for that. So like you said, they create the content, but they even create the actual product. They Users created Twitter, like as the whole function, the whole functionality. Same is true for Facebook too, where, you know, it started as a way to like rate hot girls at Harvard or whatever. So it's, yeah, they figure out what, what we like about it, but then also what makes them the most money and, and kind of do that. Um, so so what are the most important takeaways you want people uh, who might be on the fence of getting your book to um, know before we close out and move on to the next topic? Yeah, um, I, I would just say like the most important takeaway for me was just realizing how much the terms of every debate we have are already set for us. But that like And so before we start arguing about them to to think about like who is benefiting, who is uh, who is actually setting the terms of this debate. And yeah, it goes back to what we were just talking about with social media, like in terms of we're all being goaded into yelling about, you know, things that we don't we might not actually care about or have an opinion or information on. Um, and that's because it's profiting someone. And I think we should think the same thing when it comes to to free speech. Um, if you go back to the, the 20s, you know, free speech meant something completely different. It meant the ability for like the working class to have a revolution without political repercussion. And that that's how the ACLU was born was by defending that kind of free speech. So so I would just say like the most important takeaway is like, I don't know, I don't want to like put it into some kind of like platitude or something. But for me, it's just made writing the book has made me realize like I need to do less talking about everything and more like investigating more research, more figuring out like, wait a minute, is this debate really about uh, free speech? Is this debate really about uh, representation in Hollywood? Is this debate really about whatever it's about? And actually kind of like follow the money, follow the, the power and see who's benefiting and who isn't from it. And I hope that by reading my book, people can can come away with that, you know, thinking like the next time someone says 
freedom of speech or democracy or any of these platitudes to actually like go a little further and investigate what they're actually talking about. And also uh, cancel culture. That's another phrase because this book ties in very, very, very tightly to cancel culture because basically they're one and the same. And I feel like now instead of saying free speech, the new way to call it is cancel culture. And your book really changed my the way of how I thought about that term because basically people were going from debating is there a cancel culture and you know is it fair or not or who does the real cancel culture the left or the right and then you kind of realize the same as free speech there is no free speech there is no cancel culture there's just a bunch of people who want their side to be able to say what they want but want the other side to not be able to say and i think everything you say in this book i don't remember if the words cancel culture appear in the book i don't think they were it was as trendy a term as it is now at the time it was probably being written but it's I think it's really irrelevant. Uh, I think it's not only irrelevant, the the relevant book about how to think about um, cancel culture and that the real conversation should be, let's talk about if what people are saying, what you're fighting for is good for humanity instead of spending all this time uh, creating these arbitrary rules under which to give people carte blanche. And yeah, thanks so much for um, joining us on this topic. And uh, we're going to have another episode with P.E. about his other book about gentrification that I know Ken and Mario were really chomping at the bit to uh, talk about. So please join us uh, for that one next episode. Thanks. Thanks.